This call is being recorded. Hello. Hello, it's Roger. Okay. Are you plugged in? Yep, here I am. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now now you can hear me. I hear you now. Okay, good. See, it's with the AirPods. It's or the Air whatever these things are. It's not a good thing. Well, hello. Well, stick with the good thing. I know. I'm just going to like do speakerphone and and it'll be fine. So, hello everybody. You are on the podcast. I'm not that old lady. And we have a special guest on the podcast today, a wonderful friend of mine from school days in Minnesota, Roger Nygaard, who now works in the entertainment field and lives in California. Welcome, Roger. Uh, hello. I'm, I'm talking to you from California. Yes, you are. And I'm in Minnesota. I haven't left. <laughs> you know, you're allowed to. I know I am. And and I visit other people. I just keep living here for all of my life. Yeah. It's fine. So let's get the, <laughs> It'll do. It'll do. Let's get the listeners up to date on who Roger is and he has directed TV series such as The Office, The Bernie Mac Show, and has edited Emmy nominated episodes of Veep, Curb Your Enthusiasm and Who is America? As an award-winning documentarian, Roger has tackled serious topics in a humorous way like Trekkies, Six Days in Roswell, and The Nature of Existence, which is my personal favorite. In his latest documentary and book, The Truth About Marriage, he examines how we can all make relationships happier or at least less disastrous. Many recent, Most recently, he co-produced and edited The Comedy Store, a documentary about comedians who came through this world-famous L.A. club, as well as editing scenes from Borat 2, Borat's subsequent movie film. Roger's next project is Curb Your Enthusiasm, Season 11. And welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad we could get together today. How are you? Thank you, and thanks for reading my bio. Well, you sent it to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. How are you doing, buddy? <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm great. I mean, aside from a worldwide pandemic, everything is great. Yeah. Gosh, what a year. The election, the pandemic, the, the lockdowns, the masks, the, and it's, how is it out there in California? I mean, the fires and weather and... Ugh. Yeah, well, we're used to fires and mudslides. It's just we have our four seasons here are just a little different from Minnesota's four seasons. Mm, true. You don't get any snow in L.A., do you? Up in the mountains they do, sure, but not down here in the lowlands. I mean, if you go up to Big Bear or Idlewild, Sometimes it comes down even, there have been rare years when there's been a blanket of snow briefly before it melted, but in the San Fernando Valley, but it's it's very rare. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, you can always come home to Minnesota if you want to see snow, but not now because everything's still no snow, green grass. I love to visit. Oh my goodness. I try to come every year and go fishing. 
And this year well, was a bust, year. but next year yeah. I'll make up for it. Well, next year we're going to have the 40th reunion, but it'll be the 41st reunion next year. 40 plus one. 40 plus one, yes. Can you imagine? Oh, my gosh. We are getting up there. Okay, so anyway, you <laughs> have always been in movies, as I remember, even when we were in middle school. What keeps you going? How did you get started? <laughs> I found my dad's camera, and that was it. He left out his uh, first his Yashica, 120-millimeter wind uh, black and white uh, reflex viewer camera, and uh, I found it one day. It had half a roll of film in it, so I experimented. It was during the winter, and you know, in years when you get a really windy, wavy fall, when it's freezing, it splashes up on the shore and it makes these icicles and these ice sculptures that hang down mm -hmm. off of the shrubbery and the trees and the brush that surrounds the lake. We lived on North Arm. Okay. And so I thought that was pretty. Like, wow, these ice sculptures. So I went down and took pictures of the ice sculptures. And then I forgot about it. A couple weeks later, I hear, who wasted this film on ice? <laughs> you know, because you get the film back from the processor and half the roll was my pictures of ice sculptures. Um, but that's where it started. And then I found my dad's eight millimeter camera and started making little films, conscripting uh, friends and relatives or siblings, whoever was available. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just more of a compulsion. You know, when you find something you like and you go, wow, I like doing this. You don't have to motivate yourself to do it. You have to motivate yourself to to do other things like homework. No, yeah. <laughs> and stop yeah, doing the thing you love doing. Yeah. So you were the filmmaker and I was the sewer. I did everybody's sewing projects in home ec. <laughs> so there you go. Find what you love and then keep doing it. Hopefully you find someone who will pay you to do it. That Well, and they did that as well, but I'm retired now. Well, good. And I remember you when we were in school. I mean, it's not like we were like super close friends in school, but you always had this thing like, oh, Roger's making another movie. You know, it's just like, well, there goes Roger again. And then you made a career <laughs> up. There he goes again. <laughs> yeah, do you remember one year in high school, I did a screening during mods. And at the beginning of the day, you know how the uh, principal would make do the announcements and so I went down and made it an announcement hey I'll be showing my film in the cafeteria and I didn't think anybody would really show up maybe a few people and it was a my indestructible uh, indestructible man film part oh. two or three or something <laughs> and the entire school emptied out and came down and filled up the cafeteria and watched my movie and it was like wow people <laughs> they like to watch my movie well, yeah, we did. That's fantastic. I don't remember that, but that was 40-some-odd years ago. So <laughs> It was probably more a little more impactful on me. <laughs> That's true. And you have, you have we better, this better be good. <laughs> it better be good, Nygaard. You're making me miss mods. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it, it, as you move forward and you went to school, um, I, I I mean, I'm a movie watcher and I, I like a certain genre of movies, but I, it always occurs to me 
that movies, when I'm watching movies, kind of influence people. So how do you think movies influence society in general? And I'm thinking more like fashion, vocabulary, politics, violence. Does the movie industry plan for societal influences? Do the writers realize that they're doing it at the time? What a good question. Yeah, well, um, certainly Hollywood gets blamed a lot for causing this or that. But in my experience, it's more of a symbiotic feedback loop. You know, because writers and filmmakers, they're also part of society. They're not Mm -hmm. outside of it. Sure. And... I don't think I don't think films influence society as much as it reflects society, because uh-huh. if you make something and nobody tunes in, it's canceled. So you've got you give we give the audience what they want, or you've got no audience. We're satisfying what they want to watch, and providing a service to get as many eyeballs or clicks now or viewers as as possible. And so, yeah, there's a feedback loop because when people see something in a movie or or run a music video, it may influence their fashion or their tastes or like commercials influence Mm -hmm. what they purchase. Product placement is a big thing in movies. Oh, yeah, is it? But um, it's um, a lot of it is design. You know, a lot of the design firms are in California you want to design the shape of a new automobile, for instance, it's probably designed in California Mm. or uh, clothing or what have you. And part of that, I think my theory, here's just Roger's theory and this overlaps in the movie business, but there's an old saying, nuts roll West, you know, all the, uh, since the founding, the beginning of the country, when Europeans came over, the people that left Europe, and came here were the outcasts, the ones who didn't fit in, the oddballs, and they headed over to this new country and started out with settlements. And then the oddballs of those settlements who didn't fit in kept moving west. And then the oddballs in the middle moved further west until eventually they hit the Pacific Ocean and they couldn't go any further. And they stopped and stayed in California. So you get the oddest of the oddest of the oddest but these are the people who think differently and are maybe in some ways more creative as a result. And so they think up new stuff. They design things. So you have a lot of design firms out here who are thinking up, imagining things, whether it's stories or fashion or jewelry or cars or whatever it is, a new saucepan. Somebody has to design it. And typically, you know, Silicon Valley is a, the digital example of that it's it's in California they're designing new software so I think it's flexive it goes both directions but you've got the the nuttiest people on the west coast well yeah um I I, I've been there a number of times in various stages of my life and it was um the last time I was out there was probably was before 9/11. That was interesting. It, it's a different vibe. I'm not saying it's a bad vibe. It was just really different. And you know, I'm from the Midwest, so it's yeah, it's different. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so you saw, you felt it, right? You saw all the nutcases, the oddballs, 
the weirdos, the bizarros, the different thinkers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially if you go to some place like Oregon. Do you ever travel to Oregon? No, but that's on my list. Oregon is sort of like a time capsule where all the hippies moved there and stayed. And it's very, very much has a hit me, hit, hippie flavor to it. It's it's like the 1970s, the late 60s stop there. Oh, wow. No, I survived the 60s and 70s. I, I've moved on from that. But I, I want to see the coast. And it was really nice when I was the last time I was out to California. Um, so where did I fly in? I flew into John Wayne. And um, it was nice having drinks on the Pacific Ocean right on the beach there. You know, it was a beautiful restaurant. I was there for business. So it was like super nice. And man, you can get really drunk at sea level. It's not a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. So if we if we keep going on that theme, it seems that now I understand that society influences movies, movies in influence society. That makes a lot of sense to me. But it also seems as though movies and TV shows kind of lay out a roadmap of how we should act or handle problems, you know, communicating with others, accepting diversity and, and so much more. It's, is it risky to script in stereotypes and influence society when it comes to relationships. It just, I mean, I don't, I don't know a whole lot of people that live like that, that show on CBS, the neighborhood. And, you know, I don't, you don't see the the Brady bunch being duplicated in the real world or leave it to beaver or something. I mean, it, it's so idyllic. How does that influence, the writers and how they and the directors how they put it in the movie you know the whole cycle it just seems like they're trying to in you know insert something in there or am i way off base um well if you're talking about the way things are portrayed in a tv show or movie versus reality yes there's a reflection there once again and an ideal for uh, behavior. I mean, the best stories, um, if you look at where stories come from, why do we write stories the way they are? There's a a certain style, it's called three-act structure. And it originated, um, you can go all the way back to the, the Greeks. Aristotle, I think, is the first one who outlined the idea that there's a prologue and and then there's a middle and an and, and ending, climax and an ending. And so this is the way human beings like their stories told to them. It's not writers dictating, here's how you will listen to a story or watch a story. Uh-huh. We as a writer or filmmaker are following the style, the structure that, that people like stories to be told to them. Oh. And yeah there's a basic formula to it. That's why you see it sometimes becomes tiresome, particularly where it's really obvious like superhero movies. And it starts with a hero or a main protagonist who has a goal and there are obstacles to the goal. And there's an antagonist who's trying to stop the hero and the antagonist is stronger. But the hero looks deep within and finds the strength to defeat the antagonist. And right. 
and you live happily ever after. That's the <laughs> typical storyline of a movie. And a TV show also has to kind of wrap things up in 30 minutes. Right. That's what's different, though, is, you know, in, in your life, my life, in real life, we don't always get closure. We don't get to wrap things up so neatly. And mm-hmm. so our lives don't resemble the way things, you know, the way that the storylines are wrapped up so easily in something like TV shows from when we were growing up, like the, the Brady Bunch or My Three Sons or what have you. Oh, that was and, a good one. But every episode has a moral or a theme or a teaching uh, moment of some kind mm-hmm. or the good ones. The, mm-hmm. It means even Star Trek, you know, which I studied for my uh, documentary Trekkies. Every episode of Star Trek is a morality play. They set it on another planet or in space or in the future so that they could take it out of the uh, context that we're used to and look mm-hmm. at it more objectively. But every mm-hmm. episode ended with Kirk learning a lesson or somebody uh, facing a challenge and um, we as the audience learn a lesson by watching the episode. Yeah, and that's yeah. there's an influence. They're designed to influence people, just like Aesop's fables or the Bible right. or take or the whatever Bible. influential text that you prefer. Right, right. That and That was very well thought out and portrayed in the nature of existence. Still my favorite movie of yours because it's just so you, you want to stop every five minutes and just elaborate on something. Cause it was just like, wait, stop the movie. We, we want to talk about this more. You know, there was just so much information there that was so fascinating, but I digress. So when we're in this wait. mode of influencing people in, in society and this, this big circle, every once in a while you have this probably happy accident of a, a certain line that's ingrained in our vernacular. And then we, cause we all love movies. We all love the fantasy of stepping out of our own reality and going into this perfect or somewhat imperfect world that has a mor- moral and a story and a wrap up. But we get these little lines that are like so common in our everyday life. Like I'll be back. Or come with me if you want to live, which is, I don't know why it's one of my favorites. And go ahead and make my day. And damn the torpedoes all, you know, full speed ahead and snap out of it, which is Moonstruck. And my very favorite movie of all time is Moonstruck. I could probably recite it. So are the writers, do they hope for that? Or is it just a happy accident? That I mean, as a viewer, I'm always wondering, man, did the guy that write that or the woman that write that, did they are just like, hey, that's my line, and everybody's saying it now. I'm I'm always curious about that. No, it's pure luck. It's pure luck. Is Nobody it? can say I'm going to become the zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you try to write, you try to write snappy dialogue or clever dialogue or concise, well-meaning, well-written dialogue, and then those those moments will come out of it sometimes and be surprising you know larry david said to me that he has no idea why his catchphrase pretty 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 good is even funny but apparently it is and it caught on it's just something that came out of his mouth in one of his improv scenes one day and surprised us all that that little phrase became so popular who knows you don't know 
So it is just a happy accident. Yeah, for sure. No, you know, struggle. They struggle to write. Nobody gets it right on the first draft. Everything is many, many drafts before you're seeing the final product. But how does that work when it's they're adapting from a book? It like a, you know, you see a lot of things that are, you know, a bestseller that all of a sudden gets sold as a movie, and and you know you can't do the whole thing absolutely word for word from the book because it would be a week long. But you know that's got to be that's got to be just. I mean, you kind of have to dice up the book a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, you take it as a beginning point, so the starting point, and then you it, books and movies have different different structures, that are, different things that are allowed. A movie is a very specific structure, and if you violate that, you will pay for it by people mm. not watching. With a mm. book, you can get away with meandering and talking about inner thoughts and exploring digressions and tangents, which you could never, you can't do in a movie. Otherwise, you lose people. Oh, I see. I guess I guess everyone's following the rules because very rarely am I bored with a movie. So it, you're a director, yeah. And what influences do directors have on the final product? I mean, you you say that there's rules, so there has to be a playbook. But you know, what is your influence on a particular any particular project? Well. Um... I think I'm a little bit biased, of course, but, you know, I've done, I've been writer, a director, a producer, and an editor, uh, and I think the most important person to any project is the writer because there's nothing without a script. Everything, everything flows from the screenplay. So if you don't have a good screenplay, it's hard to make a good movie. If you have a good mm-hmm. screenplay, you can still ruin it and make a bad movie, but you've got to start with good writing. And then right. the next most important person is probably the director on a film or the showrunner on the TV series because they're in charge of all the creative decisions in every department. And then I think the third most important person is the editor because the editor is rewriting everything and fixing it or cre- deciding what you're going to see. I mean, the, the studios will say the actors are the most important, and they're right from a marketing perspective. Uh-huh. but there's still just the ornamentation on the framework created by the writer and then directed and organized by the showrunner and then assembled by the editor. So there's, the influence is different in each of those categories, equally important in every one that the composer can ruin a movie by giving you bad music. Every, every stage oh. is an opportunity to ruin the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That I makes mean, a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, the directors or the showrunners, they look to me to 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 hide all their mistakes in the editing room. <laughs> Roger, can you cut that thing out? Can you rearrange this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And you're like, oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I got to save their asses. Right. Absolutely. So when when it comes to to movies, it seems as though there's like a, either a historical narrative or a fantastical escapism performance, um, it, a narrative of, of what has been and why or what could be if this or that could happen. 
and the, does the movie industry know that they're influencing viewers and they do it on they do it on purpose so you you've said that and all of these things work together and you know star trek when we were watching that as kids on in a black and white tv it was just the most amazing thing i i mean how many astronauts do you think were born out of that movie or that show <laughs> <laughs> lots of them yeah they've said so you know I talked to them STEM wasn't even a thing back then, and a lot of a lot of us didn't go into science. But maybe some kid was like, "Wow, that is really cool." I mean, the that's what I mean by the influence of television and movies. That they can the, a really good movie like Top Gun can totally increase the recruiting efforts of the Navy because everybody wants to fly be a naval aviator. And, you know, things like that. John Wayne, what he did with World War II movies to to bolster the, the whole country's attitude and about the whole war effort. And even he, he, when his Vietnam movies and the Western movies. And, I mean, I just think it's really, really important for for this industry to be encouraged and saved. And we'll get in, you know. Another time we'll get into the whole preservation of movies, but I just think it's so interesting. I watch movies three times. I have to. I watch them first because I'm so absorbed in the costuming that I can't really pay attention on what's going on. Then I watch it again and find all the the costuming again and kind of listen to the music. And then the third time I actually watch the whole movie. And it's just the way I am because I'm the costumer. I would be the one picking apart the clothing. That's too tight. That's in the wrong spot. That darts too high. You know, it's just that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, I mean, we all have our hang-ups. So it seems as though scripted shows are really embracing the COVID pandemic now. Um, and do they usually have an agenda in mind? I mean, when it, it comes to social ideas and political views, they have always been part of the script. I was always, you know, and I was, like I said before, I was always disappointed that I wasn't one of the Brady Bunch or that I wasn't as economically free as the people on Friends or politically laid out as the West Wing or Madam Secretary, two of my very favorites. Um, So when it comes to the pandemic now, and I noticed that everyone's starting to ramp up production and a couple of those shows have been kind of shut down again because of maybe some some spreader events type of thing. Can you give us an idea of what's going on out there? Well, yeah, they're they're forced to include the pandemic because it's pervasive and they have mm-hmm. to write about something and but it's best when they write about something relevant to everybody and this is what everyone's experiencing right now. It's uh there's I mean if you're doing a historical epic then you obviously avoid it, but if you're doing something contemporary like Grey's Anatomy a, a story about a hospital they're going to have to include this because this is mm-hmm. current that's that's where we are and it's a part of life you know we whenever i look at a, a, a if i'm cutting a scene or a, a series or a movie i always ask myself what is the point of this scene or what is the theme of this scene what is the idea that they're trying to get across yeah and then yeah I look for what is the most expedient, shortest, and most elegant way to present that idea. Or, you know, what can I cut out? I'll cut out everything that doesn't support that idea. 
And right now, the ideas that we are looking at and facing and considering are different than they were a year ago. And next year, it'll be different again. So it's just constantly evolving and changing. And five years from now, this will be forgotten, or all but forgotten. It'll be, I mean, the way 9-11 was hugely important, but it's kind of virtually forgotten at this point. And there's a lot of people alive today, a lot of teenagers who don't remember 9-11. It has no reference to them any more than the assassination of uh, Abraham Lincoln does to any of us. Right, right, exactly. And would it be a part of the the movie industry or the entertainment industry as a whole to kind of keep that at the forefront? I mean, I... I you well, yeah, if you, you, if, you don't, if you forget history, you're, gonna, you're doomed to repeat it. You know, that's an old saying. And so people are notoriously forgetful, and then they make the same mistakes. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Very true. Did you have Miss Saklacha for, for social studies in high school? Because she had the best line that I'll never forget. She was one of my favorite teachers. She said, you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Which is basically, you <laughs> yeah. know, if you... You're doomed to repeat your mistakes if you don't learn from them, type of thing. But she she said to me once, sure. "If you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going," or some something to that effect. And I thought, "Oh man!" She was at the 30 year reunion too, by the way, briefly. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's like self awareness, right? Most people are very much not self aware. They don't understand <laughs> their own motivations, why they think or do what they do. They don't question it. It doesn't. They're not curious about it, but you need to be, or you should be, or you are essentially manipulated by your surroundings, whether it's mm-hmm. the media that you uh, you consume, or your friends and relatives, neighbors, social cues, everything can influence you to, towards certain choices and actions. I've always been, from the beginning, I mean, I remember in, even, you know, in high school, just why is that the case? Why do we have to do that? I, why was my biggest question it would drive the teachers crazy? And because <laughs> I didn't take anything for granted. And I have a, I guess I've had a bullshit meter that uh, has been uh, finely tuned from an early age for whatever reason. And I tended to be very, very much an iconoclast and to go my own road and I've never really belonged to groups. I don't like groups. I'm not never belonged to a fraternity or uh, uh, Cub Scouts, just not interested in what the group is doing. I've been interested in doing my own thing and forging my own path. And it's a little more lonely that way. And it's scary. And it's what led me out of Minnesota to California to pursue my my future as a filmmaker and who knows what would happen. I didn't know anybody when I moved to California. And then taking that a step further, I've traveled to uh, so many other countries to make my documentaries, which is always initially a very scary idea because what am I going to encounter when I get to India or China? Oh, you know, or Indonesia or Brazil or what, all these places I've been. But once I get there, it's amazing. It's fantastic. And I've been like, what was I so worried about? This is incredible. In just meeting interesting people and learning about their lives, it, it's been 
such a satisfying experience to go somewhere like India with my camera, uh-huh. sometimes with and without, and find people and then talk to them. People right. love to talk to me about their lives. They love to be asked questions. They love it when people love it when you are interested in them and their lives because it's rare. It doesn't happen very often in real life. Somebody stops and says, hey, what's your life like? What do you think about this? What do you think about the big questions? We don't have those conversations regularly, but so we're all really thirsty for it. And when you do, it's so enjoyable. And, and it's been one of the greatest joys of my life is to, to continue to break out of my shell and my surroundings and go places I've never been and learn about people. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I've been able to put that into documentaries, and that's given me a real motivation to, to do that on a regular continuing basis. When you do it well, and I'm mortally jealous because I keep telling my grandchildren, you have to travel abroad. You have to travel. Keep traveling. And my oh, my eldest granddaughter was all set to go on a school band trip to uh, Spain. I can't remember where in Spain. And then COVID hit and shut everything down. And that this past summer, the other granddaughter was scheduled to go on the seventh grade Washington, D.C. trip that we all went on. And that got shut yeah. down. Yeah. So they were both just oh. heartbroken. I mean, and I said, honey, it's the whole world. The whole world is feeling this. But, you, I mean, I think we were, didn't you and I, weren't we on the same trip to Washington, D.C.? I remember we that were. trip, and I think you were there. Yeah, and uh, David Breitbart. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, Tom Bennett and Amber Torkelson and Katie. I think right. Katie Bennett. Yeah, I think they were, we were all, there's a picture. I think I have a picture of you on the bus, I think. <laughs> but, and I almost broke We my stayed at the Sheraton Hotel, right? The Sher- yes, Remember the Sheraton? And that was so much fun. We stayed up late talking and telling stories, and, and, and it was so great to be away from home. And that's one of the, I guess, my first travel trip, maybe years too, you know, that wasn't a family trip. Yeah. No, I was, we traveled before that. So, yeah, when I was like nine, I think eight or nine, we with went the family. to family. You mean with the family? Yeah. Right, but without the family. But when you family. travel without your family, it's a different experience. I took plenty of family vacations, skiing to Aspen, or Montana, which are great, but it's so different when you go on a journey that's not a family thing, because when you're with your family, it's still just the family dynamic, and right. you can't really break out of your, your shell as easily when the family's around. Right. But if you're right. somewhere traveling on your own, like one year, the first time I ever really took a trip on my own was in the 2000. And I I said to my girlfriend at the time, you know, let's do something different for Christmas. Let's just go somewhere. And she was up for it. So I just got on the internet and researched and what popped up was Guatemala. I'd never been there no desire to go there. Didn't know anything about it, but I read about it and it seemed, okay, that sounds fun. So we went to Guatemala for Christmas and New Year's. And it was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. It was gorgeous. And I've never seen so many fireworks at Christmas Eve, because they go fireworks crazy down there on the holidays. 
It was wow. incredible. I highly recommend a trip to Guatemala. You go to Antigua and Lake Atitlan and Chichicastenango. Um, they've got uh, Mayan ruins there in Tikal that are, have these 20-story pyramids that are as wow. big or bigger than any other ruins that you would find in Belize or Mexico. And it's just awe-inspiring. You just can't believe what kind of a society existed at one point that built these pyramids. Right here, you know, in Central America, you don't have to go to Egypt to see. That's not the only place. Pyramids. I didn't know that until I got there, and it was fantastic. And that's where I really got hooked on traveling. Well, absolutely. See, now I would love to do that. I want to just like get in the car and go. But I mean, I wouldn't drive to Guatemala. But finally got a passport. You could. You could. Yeah. Well, I could. I could, but (laughs) my insurance wouldn't travel that far. But I'm going to go to Canada. I'm just going to go to, I'm going to drive to Canada and cross the border for the first time in my life, that border. And uh, Oh, Canada, Ontario is, you can't believe how gorgeous, I couldn't believe how gorgeous Ontario is. It's, it's, it's unimaginable until you get there because really what, uh, just to give you an example, like, you know, Minnesota is known as the land of 10,000 lakes, right? And did you know that Wisconsin actually has 16,000 lakes? Well, we do too, but yeah. That's <laughs> a lot of lakes, right? Well, do you know how many lakes Ontario has? No. 350,000. Wow! Well, it's yeah, insane. the glaciers are there. Oh, but how pretty that would be. And take that. The, yeah, the glaciers carved out all these lakes in Ontario. And the topography is all granite. They call it the granite shield where all this granite was probably molten at some time and then hardened and then pushed up to the top through plate tectonics and then eroded. And then the glaciers came over it and carved these lakes. So you have all, all of these granite islands and um, all the lakes and streams that connect them all. Like if you, I go to Lake of the Woods as, uh, every other year or so. And Lake of the Woods alone has something like, uh, oh, I forget the figure, it was like 20,000 islands. Wow. It's huge. And there's islands everywhere from, from three feet across to three, five miles across. Some islands have lakes in the middle, uh, have their own lake in the middle of the island. <laughs> it's gorgeous. It's so, be- it's, it's probably, it's certainly one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, if not the most beautiful. Wow. Well, I got to go now. Well, on that recommendation, I I will I will travel. I will travel there. There's a lodge on uh, Lake of the Woods called Satisfong Bay Lodge on Cedar Island, and I highly recommend it. It's easy to get to. the it, it, The people are super nice. The fishing is excellent. It's beautiful, and I've been going there since I was about eight or nine, when my dad used to take me and my brothers fishing up there. It's the oldest lodge on the lake. And so it has a special sort of significance for me to make a pilgrimage back there every year or two and mm-hmm. sort of retrace the steps that I went, that my dad took us fishing, took me and my, took, he took my grandparents. So it's, it's amazing that place is still there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. See, and, and without sharing these stories, no one else would really know. I didn't know that Guatemala was that beautiful. I mean, I know a guy from Guatemala, but he never talks about it. So, 
I mean, that's the kind of Ask thing. Ask him about we... Lake Atitlan. Ask him what he thinks of Lake Atitlan. It's a volcanic lake. And, okay. And so it's actually, you're, you're, you're visiting the inside of a volcano <laughs> where there are very luxurious places to stay. The hotel we stayed at was an old uh, coffee plantation turned into a hotel. And wow. it, it's inexpensive. It's not expensive at all. It's, in fact, it's so affordable. You, you, you'll be shocked. Wow. In a volcano. The volcano is no longer active, I hope. Correct. There are other ones that you can see in the distance that are still puffing out smoke. <laughs> oh, God. But that one's no longer active. Oh, thank God. <laughs> That'd be a toasty stay. Well, good to know. Good to it's know. It's a very I'm... seismically active area of the world in Central America because these different tectonic plates are connecting. And so the, the locals are used to it. Huh. I've never felt the ground move beneath my feet. I'm, I'm sure being a Californian, you have, but I've, I've oh, heard countless it's, times. it's freaky. I've heard it's really freaky. Yeah, well, with a tornado, at least you have some warning. Hey, a tornado's coming with a with an earthquake. It's just like in the middle of the night, boo! <laughs> you know, it just scares the crap out of you. <laughs> I wouldn't like that at all. Oh, goodness. Okay, so um, getting back to uh, the subject at hand. Um, so I've heard from other interviews that actors bring a certain bias to the script. And I've also heard that some of the directors will bring like A-listers together and kind of give them the outline and just let them run with it because they know what to do. Is that, does that really happen? Cause I'm always thinking, are they making that up? I mean, they, they gotta be directed somehow, right? Yeah. It depends on how much power they have, which is based on how much money their most recent three movies or projects made. Oh. And if, if they're on a hot streak, then, yeah, they're going to wield their power. But the problem is that actors are not writers. And good writing is difficult. Actors are, are, are giving you the words written by somebody else. So uh -huh. it's not their brain that you are the beneficiary of. It's the writer's brain. And the actors are there to recreate it for you. So you get into a problem and actors start to think that they're both. I mean, there are some that are both. That There's some writer at performer actors. You know, Larry David is a writer performer and mm -hmm. uh, he's sort of a national treasure as a result. But generally mm -hmm. the best media, movies, TV shows is the result of one voice. Even in a, when there's a TV writer's room with a dozen writers, one person is the storyteller or the showrunner whose lens everything is filtered through, like Vince Gilligan, Breaking Bad, or Better Call Saul, which is a couple of my favorites. Larry David, mm -hmm. of course, is a star on Earth. It's his voice that the show uh, is, that we are experiencing. Dave Mandel was the showrunner on Veep, who replaced Armando uh, uh, Iannucci, who created the show, and he took it over and continued Armando's voice, but it's still one person. David was, Mandela was making the creative choices in conjunction with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She, she essentially had co-equal 
approval, but luckily they were on the same page and Dave ultimately had the final say. Mm-hmm. Another writer mm-hmm. producer is Alec Berg, who co-created and runs the TV show Barry with the star Bill Hader. And those two share the voice. It's, they created the show together and they make decisions together. So it's typically the one person's voice in the best your favorite TV shows, when you've got groupthink, committees don't make good art. <laughs> no. Same, whether it's a painting or architecture or a movie, it's usually one very strong-willed artist that comes through. That makes sense to me. That does make sense to me. Okay, so, so my we, documentaries are my, you know, when you see my documentaries, it's my voice, it's my questions and my response to what I've learned by asking these questions. You know, it's all me wondering these things and then investigating it and presenting, you know, the truth about marriage. This is what I found out when I investigated marriage. And here you go. Here's my opinion and what I learned. Right. I actually, I've watched that movie twice, and I had my husband sit down and watch it with me once. So, <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> well done. we got to watch this. It's on Amazon. We can do this. <laughs> Here, watch Roger's movie. He's fantastic. And he's like, oh, well, that was pretty good. <laughs> you know, my Good. Has he become a better listener? Did he, did he oh, take it to heart no. and, and look? <laughs> well, I mean, he's, he's your typical... Uh, bless his heart. I mean, he's he's the yin to my yang because he's the the typical Minnesotan stoic German Lutheran farm boy. I am not by any means any of those things, but we <laughs> seem to make it work. I mean, I keep telling people that Bob is the stake in the ground, and I'm the crazy poodle at the end of the chain running around the stake in the ground. Because it's just the way things are. I'm the crazy Italian, and he's the stoic German Lutheran farm boy from Minnesota. So yeah, we're not from mm-hmm. around here. You know, we none of my family was born in Minnesota. We just, I'm the only one that learned to walk and talk here. We came here. Well, if you're I not was, a member of the Chippewa tribe, then none of us are from around that's there. That's true. You know, I keep reminding people that we're all invaders, unless. And native. even they came over the uh, the Asia land bridge to right. uh, what was now Alaska. Um, right. So everyone's from somewhere. Everyone is. Everyone's from somewhere. And we all have to share. We all have to get along. We all have to do this together. And, you know, when we were kids and the landing on the moon and they had that, that sh- the earth rise photograph and it, it hit me like a ton of bricks, like a speeding train that, oh, my God, that's all we have. That's it. Everything on that third rock from the sun, that's all we have. It can go nowhere else for very long. I mean, we really have to figure it out. I don't know. That's my political yeah. statement. But... Unless you believe in an afterlife. Well, um... even then. <laughs> this even is it. then. Right. You know, I mean, all the resources have to be used to make something. And then when you're done with it, you have to 
discard it somewhere. Well, where are you going to discard it? It's still in your own backyard. I don't care if it's, you know, three states away. It's still on Earth somewhere. It's on yeah, you know, you read about microplastics, how they, they're basically little bits of plastic are getting into everything, whether it's the top of K2 or the Marianas Trench and everywhere in yep. between. Yep, I've been I've been listening to a lot of information about that, and it just breaks breaks my heart. But you know, oh boy, yeah. Well, yeah. Anyway, and we as baby boomers, you know, we we've seen a lot. <laughs> we've and we have. I think we have a huge influence on so many aspects of the economy and politics, younger generations. And how do you feel about the landscape as it's stretching? before us now well there's always going to be more new waves of new people and next generations that's it's just the way it goes right and the number of for me the number of filmmakers has increased exponentially because everybody has access to editing equipment on their computer now and cameras are inexpensive you can use your iphone to shoot video Mm -hmm. so people are shooting and editing their own videos and posting them on YouTube or TikTok or whatever. But the interesting thing is that even though the number of films made every year has gone up uh, exponentially, the number of good movies has not increased at all. The number of good filmmakers is still the same. The barrier to entry is lower, so a lot of people now are doing it. And... A lot of those good filmmakers, though, have gone into TV to serve a bit of a TV renaissance happening. They're, you know, they're gravi- gravitating toward long-form series and writing things in a serialized manner. Mm-hmm. A lot of, there's a lot of great TV shows. Um, but I think on par, the average number of really good stories told every year is the same now as it was 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago maybe per capita, I'll put that caveat on it. There's still the same number of people who are really good at telling stories or willing to do the hard work. A lot of people aren't willing to do the hard work. They want instant uh, feedback, and so they throw it on Facebook, and then they're done. And Facebook is such a – it's a time killer, and it it destroys product. And it destroys creativity because it's an outlet for you to be creative. You can go to your funny thought of the day or your video. Right. Then it, it scrolls down the feed and it's gone forever, never to be seen again. Right. Whereas if you took that time and you put it into finishing your painting or your sculpture or your poem or your book or for me, my documentary or whatever, and complete that, then you have a product that remains and is a part of the of the culture. It's something that is is there forever. Instead of just vanishing like a mirage on your feed. Ah. Interesting. That makes that I I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, cuz I mean, how many hours a day do I waste on Facebook scrolling around or Instagram or something and Oh, okay. All right. And you're right. I just kind of keep scrolling down huh you could be using that creative energy any you know you've got a certain amount of creative energy per day how are you going to spend it most people piss it away 
It wasted. Right. I mean, you could spend it on a, on a garden. That's a better use of your creative energy. You're creating something. You're creating life, bringing forth carrots and beets or corn or something. <laughs> you know, most people, the default is to bring forth a, a younger version of themselves and have children because that's why we're here. Thank you, Mother Nature. Right. And then uh, 18 years later, though, once you kick them out of the basement, or however long it takes, then you're back to where you started. Like, what do I do now? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that. And if you end up scrolling through Facebook, you're just pissing it away until you, you know, you're just wasting time until you die. Or pick up a hobby. Pick up a hobby at that point. Take a pottery class or a dance class or a writing seminar. Join a writing group. Do something that ends in a tangible result that you have when it's all over. That's mm-hmm. permanent, that people can remember you by. You know, when I was interviewing Irvin Kirshner, who directed Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, The Nature of Existence, I asked him about his thoughts on life after death, and he said, the afterlife is what remains in the memory of the people you've known in the work you've left behind. So what will somebody leave behind? What are, what is anyone, what are you going to leave behind? What am I going to leave behind? This is what I consider. You know, is it going to be something constructive? If you're an architect, is it a beautiful house? Or maybe you bought a house and fixed it up. You added on to it. You improved it. Or is it a business, right. a thriving business? Is it a book you've written, a poem? Or are you going to leave a big mess behind, <laughs> like a house filled with junk? <laughs> or a clear-cut forest just to make a mon- momentary profit. Or, are you, you know, maybe you're a notorious murderer and you'll be remembered. That's, some people, they do terrible things. And are you going to be something, do something positive or something negative? I used to, you know, it used to kind of bother me to think that, well, if I remain single, it might, maybe that make, does that make me an evolutionary dead end? Then I wondered, does it really matter? You know, and that's sort of what part of what led to making the nature of existence was this idea of existentialism. What's the point of everything? Mm-hmm. And I asked uh, this question um, of myself when I thought about, like, how much do I remember about my great grandparents? I remember I've got, I had grandparents, and I vaguely remember two great grandparents that that survived, but you know, didn't they died when I was pretty young. My right. grandma, Cora, was a great-grandmother. She lived to be 103, and she was a real uh, uh, iconoclast herself and did a lot of things like travel to Africa and kind of uh, did whatever she wanted. But I don't know anything about my great-great-grandparents or their parents. I never think about my great-great-grandparents or what they did. So I don't have anything any knowledge of my relations going back four or five generations, people that far in the Mm -hmm. past no longer have any relevance. And if I were to have children, would I also have no relevance to my great, great descendants? So are we all just a link in a process that we have no control over that's ultimately meaningless or is there something deeper and more meaningful? And that's very painful to consider for some people. It creates a lot of anxiety and then they grab on to something that you feel like you're a cork floating in, in an ocean during a storm until so you grab onto something like a religious text or a, a, a spouse or children. You know, you can't let the children go or something to 
just keep you uh, feeling like you're still relevant. Ah. And the thing that will remain, once that's all over, is what you leave behind. So for me, the moral of the story was leave some, some useful, helpful artwork behind. And for me, it's documentaries, mm-hmm. films, things that make people laugh. And they do. <laughs> they do. That's, the nature that's of all. That's my, it's enough. It was awesome. <laughs> I just love that movie. Oh, my gosh. Well, and I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I was, I'm an artist of, of fabric. I'm a tailor by trade. And I've made a lot of really pretty garments. And my daughter knows that she can have any dress she wants when she finally walks down the aisle. And, uh, you know, I could wrap brown paper around that kid and it would look good. But I'll make you any dress you want. <laughs> oh, she's just that perfect. She's the perfect model. She's the perfect height, the perfect dimension, everything. She's, there's just nothing wrong with that child. She's well, not she as tall as a gene from somebody. Well, she did. She's got a lot of her mother in her and a lot of her father, too. So it was just the perfect package. That's why I stopped at one. And I have I have published a poem. I've, I'm in some obscure poetry book somewhere. I can't tell you the wow. name of it. Wow. I know. I'm That's a published amazing. author. Pretty cool. And uh, And now I have this podcast, which I'm having a ton of fun with. So, and yeah, the it's so amazing that you're is, doing this. I really respect I that you have taken it up and, and you're running with it. Well, and it, you know, they in writing, they say you got to write what you know about. I, I couldn't be writing about being a New York supermodel because I'm not one. But I can write about not wanting to be that old lady, that old lady that has this bad attitude and is cranky all the time and... <laughs> You know, I, w- I wanted to improve that. I wanted to be able to say, wait, I'm not that old lady. I may be getting older, but I'm not that old lady. So, and and so I'm working on it and I'm going to have some um, other influences coming into the podcast and a lot of mental health, a lot of physical health and, and, and the influences that kind of have us where we are today because, you know, we're the Aquarius generation we watched the landing on the moon. We witnessed the birth of computers for home use, the internet, giant leaps forward in industry, innovation, and medical advances. We've lived through wars, Watergate, economic bubbles, and so much more. But we also grew, grew up with the best soundtrack and really great cars, which are still used in movies today. Yeah, 16 Roadrunner is my favorite. Oh, Man, we didn't know what we had. We really didn't. We had some great cars. No. The sticker yeah. price was under $3,000 for a 69 Roadrunner or Camaro or yeah. Char- Dodge Charger. Can you imagine if we still had those cars today? I mean, you couldn't afford to feed them, but oh yeah, yoy. That would yeah. be so awesome. Well, you know, 20 grand, 20 to 30, 40, 50 grand now, depending on how well-maintained it is. Right. Right. I still think my, my favorite car is still a 69 Camaro RSSS Indy Pace car replica. That would be my dream car. I've seen one in person. It was at a car show. Very my little beautiful. Car. Oh, 
Oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah, the sexy I, car. Yeah, I stopped dead in my tracks, and I was just like, oh, my God, there it is. And it was at this car show in downtown Lakeville. It was just like, oh, my God, where's the owner? Where are you? You know, I need to talk to you. It was beautiful. It was just flawless, too. It's, man, we had great cars. We had great hair. We had great soundtrack. We had a lot. <laughs> we did. I mean, and they yeah. still bring movies today. They still use our soundtrack. I think it's because we're boomers and they're trying to, like, give us a little nostalgia is we can tap our toes just immediately. And Forrest Gump, that movie had all the greatest hits in it. Yeah, the 80s uh, decade, the music was had a very positive, upbeat energy to it. Yeah, it did. Oh, my gosh. Well, Roger, I don't need to keep you, but um, it has been an absolute pleasure. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. And maybe next summer we can get together at the class reunion, 40 plus one, and I, you can cash in on that hug that I promised you. Can't wait. Yeah. I know. Oh, my gosh. And and I, I was talking to Marvel last night, and I said, you're not going to believe who I'm going to interview for the podcast tomorrow. And she's like, all right, who? And I said, Roger. And she's like, oh, oh, that's so cool. I just think he's the greatest thing in the world. I just love him. And I'm like, well, I'm going to interview him. So I'll have to have come to- and set up a hugging booth. <laughs> the line will be long. It would be wonderful. I Hopefully I can get her up here for the reunion. Because, you know, everybody stays at my house when they come in from out of state. It's a big house. We can do it. (laughs) So good. Well, I'm so glad that we had this opportunity to chat for a while. And I know you've been trying to nail me down for a while. Busy life and COVID and essential worker and all that. So I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Happy to do it. All right. Thanks, Roger. I'll probably pull this out and push it out maybe tomorrow so we can I'll give you the link okay good talking to you all right thanks talk to you soon all right bye for now bye-bye you've been listening to I'm not that old lady my name is Teresa Sayers and I'm your host I'm the producer I'm the editor I'm the mixer I'm the one that tries to find the talent. (laughs) I'm the one that makes phone calls. I do it all. And I do it from my living room or my bedroom or my home or wherever I can turn on my phone. It's so easy. You got it. It's fantastic. So I appreciate your time. Uh, Keep the emails coming at I'm not that old lady at yahoo.com and uh, be a part of the conversation. Let me know what your questions are and, and how does this information influence you? I think it's important to get everybody's perspective on this. In the meantime, tell somebody about it and show them how to do a podcast or, or at least subscribe to one and preferably mine. So in the meantime, stay safe, wash your hands, wear your mask and keep listening. Take care.